If you work in a big city hospital, when there's an airway catastrophe, it's all hands on deck. Sweating, you look up, and suddenly the help you called for are all there in a flash. Everyone and their cousin shows up, and before long, the resuscitation bay feels a little too cozy. Not so for urologic emergencies. At 3 a.m., it's crickets. Whether it be priapism, urinary incontinence, testicular torsion, or other rarer conditions, there's a good chance your urologist is snoozing at least 30 minutes away. Fortunately for us, this means that as EM docs, we own the first hour or so of management. And when it comes to that first hour, every minute counts. Today, we'll be talking about these very emergencies. You may only see one or two of these every few years of practice, but it's no reason not to stay up to date. For our male audience, this might be a bit of a cringy episode, so grab your Ondansetron and buckle up. We're headed below the belt. Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases podcast with your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. Now, there's a myriad of urologic emergencies from Fournier's gangrene to penile fracture to nephrolithiasis to UTI, most of which have been covered extensively on EM cases before, but there are three time-sensitive emergencies that we're going to get deep into on the next couple of podcasts, and they are priapism, urinary retention, and testicular torsion. And we might throw in a few updates on kidney stones to boot. And to help us along, we have an all-star EM clinician, my friend and colleague from North York General and St. Michael's Hospitals in Toronto, Dr. Natalie Wolpert. Welcome, Dr. Wolpert. Thank you, Dr. Hellman. It's lovely to be here. And from the urologist point of view, we have the Assistant Program Director at the University of Toronto Urology Program, Dr. Yona Krakowski. Welcome, Yona. Thanks for having me. All right, let's jump into our first case. A 42-year-old man with a history of sickle cell disease presents with five hours of a persistent painful erection similar to a previous episode, the last one being about a year ago. He's not been taking any medications recently. There's no trauma, no rash, no erection aids, and on exam, he's obviously in pain. His penis is fully erect and tender to palpation with no rash, no discharge, and no skin lesions. So Dr. Wolpert, first of all, Ischemic priapism. How much of an emergency is ischemic priapism? In other words, how much time do we have to fix it before there's irreversible tissue damage? Well, like with all vital organs, time is tissue. So at 24 hours, we're looking at 90% of patients with irreversible damage. And by 48 hours, that's 100% of patients with irreversible damage and permanent impotence. So the sooner, the better. At four to eight hours, we can minimize the chance of impotence. So you don't want to wait for your urologist to begin treatment. It's easy to start treatment in the ED, and time is tissue. And Dr. Kikowski, in terms of your clinical experience, does that kind of fit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the sooner you can treat someone with priapism, the better. Uh, what we always tell patients is the longer the ischemic priapism, the higher likely they're going to have irreversible changes. And uh, what we mean by that is smooth muscle death, so the actual tissues in the penis that contributes to erections die. If it's left for too long, oftentimes uh, the penis will never get an erection again and you'll 
relying on a penile implant or um, some other form of surgery in order to reestablish erections. So it's the ischemic fifth limb. The ischemic fifth limb. I like that. And this is something that emergency doctors can certainly initiate treatment and perhaps provide curative treatment. Right. So, you know, as opposed to ischemic gut or something where they got to get to the OR and there's pretty much nothing we can do in the emergency department, this is something we can do. Yeah. I'm always surprised when I hear after the fact uh, how many priapisms go through the eMERGE without us even finding out about. So, Dr. Kikowski, you had mentioned why this is time-sensitive, and a little bit about the pathophys there. But let's get a little bit more into the pathophys. I understand there's a low-flow priapism and a high-flow priapism. Can you explain the difference between the two and which one is really the worrisome one, which one isn't, and just a bit about the pathophys? Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about a normal erection. So when someone gets an erection, they're stimulated or it's a reflex or for whatever reason, the the arterial flow uh, rapidly goes into the penis at such a rate that it actually uh, blocks off the veins. So if you were to do an ultrasound on someone having an erection, they would actually have very similar to a low-flow priapism. They have real no blood going in and no blood leaving, and that's how you get a rigid erection. It's a high-pressure state within the penis itself. And what a priapism is is basically an unwanted erection that stays, and usually the number we give is something like four hours. And you can imagine if you have a lack of any flow in and any flow out, Uh, you get a skate of ischemia, which can be quite painful. And the longer the ischemic time, the more likely that the smooth muscle within the penis is going to die. So the the real interesting thing, if you did an ultrasound in someone with an erection or someone with a priapism, it would be a very similar ultrasound. And the big difference being is how long this uh, event has been sustained for and the fact that the penis is actually painful and non-painful. And of course, it's an unwanted erection. So that's a pathophysiology basic. It basically is just stasis and a lack of oxygenated blood uh, reaching the tissues that really need oxygen to thrive. High flow priapism is uh, remarkably uncommon. In fact, I've only seen one case personally. It comprises somewhere between 1% and 5% of the total amounts of priapisms, and usually in the context of trauma or in the context of post-treatment for ischemic priapism, which is basically just a cycling of oxygenated blood into the penis at such a rate that the penis is actually rigid. So in that sense, it's uh, much less of an emergency because you don't have that ischemic event going on where the tissue is being deprived of oxygenated blood. Um, We always assume in hearing a story and the erection being painful that it's an ischemic priapism, and 98% of the time that's correct. All right. And on physical exam, how would you tell the difference between a low flow and a high flow priapism? Right. So, I mean, on history, it's the, the event is a, a painful event and the uh, eliciting of substances or events are, are usually quite predictable, uh, be it antipsychotics or treatments for erectile dysfunction like intercavernosal injections. Uh, the lack of pain would suggest a high flow. Um, a soft glands can appear in, in, in both uh, situations, but a sort of a hallmark of ischemic priapism as well. So the corporal bodies are rigid and the glands itself is soft. That's a key feature, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's, uh, but, you know, without a traumatic event or uh, really something to suggest an arterial venous issue, uh, it's almost always the ischemic priapism. All right, let's talk a little bit about the causes of ischemic priapism. So we've talked about the two different kinds. Now, usually priapism is idiopathic, but I understand that there's kind of a long list that we should be aware of so that we know to remove the offending agent kind of thing. So, Dr. Wolpert, what are some of the more common causes of ischemic priapism that we should know about? So, 
most common is still idiopathic, but other common offenders include the intercavernosal injections for erection prolongation, uh, the classic being the triple mix cocktail. Another common cause we see is sickle cell disease. Uh, When I trained, we had a couple of uh, patients with sickle cell disease who would present quite frequently with nocturnal erections, come into the emergency department almost always at 3 a.m. in quite a bit of distress. So the emergency doctors at that hospital actually became quite skilled at managing priapism in these patients. So our, our case is not too unusual. It's not unusual at all. Some other causes uh, include medications such as antihypertensives, antipsychotics, as Yona mentioned, uh, some neuroleptic medications. Drugs of abuse uh, are also on the list, cocaine, marijuana, which we might be seeing more of uh, here in Canada and some U.S. states. Trauma, spinal cord injury also make the list, although those are going to be you know, found in particular clinical scenarios that are more obvious. Just to clarify, the triple mix cocktail is injected, not enjoyed in a glass. Ah, uh, okay. What what is what's in the triple mix? We call it trimix or triple mix. It's basically uh, three medications. We tell patients they're sort of super Viagra, but what they are is fentolamine, which is an alpha blocker, propavirin, which works in a similar mechanism to uh, Viagra, and a prostaglandin. And basically, it's an injectable medication that overrides the nerves that are required for erections to generate blood flow. And is this something that's kind of on the street or is this something that's prescribed? Yeah, or I, is this... I, I think we see it both. I mean, I prescribe it very commonly and uh, I'm sure Dr. Wolpert has seen it sort of as a drug of recreational use. Yes, it's it's prescribed for patients with erectile dysfunction, but then it's also used in a recreational manner, sometimes with ill effects. It'll just give you a much longer erection than you would naturally have. So people that want to go, let's say, on a bender for three, four hours, this would sort of override the normal physiology, which would be the refractory period after ejaculating. It's like the rock star of uh, erectile dysfunction (laughs) medications. I have to refrain myself from jokes that may be inappropriate for our audience. All right. It's going to be a very quiet podcast. Hard to avoid it, Dr. Kikowski, it seems to me that the diagnosis of ischemic priapism is kind of the easy part. You know, it's a non-traumatic, painful erection lasting hours with rigidity and tenderness over the corpus cavernosa, but a soft, non-tender glands, as you were uh, describing before. The non-ischemic priapism is due, as you said, to blunt trauma, something like like a saddle injury, but it's pretty rare. And usually the erection itself actually isn't painful. So that's how you distinguish those. So it seems relatively straightforward to me to distinguish ischemic priapism, the true emergency from non-ischemic priapism. Nonetheless, I've read about corporal blood gases and POCUS to aid in the diagnosis. Is there any real value in the corporal blood gas or POCUS for that matter to ensure that you're dealing with ischemic priapism as opposed to non-ischemic priapism that isn't a true emergency? Yeah, I think there absolutely is. Not as much to make the diagnosis, but once you start treating the priapism, there are some cases where it's really satisfying and the erection goes flaccid and the patient goes home and, and you've sort of averted the crisis. Uh, But very commonly, we treat it, and I think we're going to talk about treatment shortly. And then they're left with sort of a half erection. And part of it is swelling. Part of it is a reaction to the medications that we've injected or the procedure we've done. And it's very hard at times to know whether we've taken a patient out of an ischemic state. 
So one of the real advantages is getting the blood gas early on is that way we can repeat it, you know, an hour after treatment and just prove that the pH has gone uh, to a more safe uh, area or the PO2 or the PCO2 is getting better. So, I, I, you know, I think there's lots of situations where the diagnosis is a slam dunk and it seems redundant to get a corporal blood gas. Either way, we're probably going to be poking the penis. So we're in there anyways, getting blood. So we might as well send it off because it really helps with future management in these equivocal situations. We are not sure if you've done your job or not. I've got to admit that the two or three cases that I've treated in the last 20 years, I haven't bothered with a, with a blood gas. So that's a, a really good parole because you are going to get a certain percentage of patients that you're not sure whether you've actually fully treated them or not. And it'll make your guys' life much easier when you then see the patients. To get this gas, could you just go through for us exactly how you'd get the gas? We're going to talk about the treatment shortly. Getting a gas is like getting a blood gas from anywhere in the body, really. You can really just stick a needle into the penis, and the first blood you get out, send along like you would any blood gas in the ED. Okay, and we'll get into all the details of exactly what kind of needles and where and all that in a little bit. Dr. Wolpert, can you run through for us the steps in the actual treatment of ischemic priapism, which I understand is actually relatively simple. Um, and then Dr. Kikowski, you can kind of give us your take on some of the nuances. Treating priapism, it's certainly a lot less complicated than other emergency procedures we do regularly or not infrequently. Uh, it's much easier than a lumbar puncture or a central line. And as we discussed before, time is tissue. So this is definitely something you want to undertake while you're reaching out for assistance from your urology specialist. Initially, you want to start with analgesia. So that uh, usually takes the form of a dorsal nerve block. You can also consider systemic analgesia or even a uh, conscious sedation to facilitate the procedure in a patient who's unable to tolerate assessment or is not cooperative with your examination and procedure. But most patients, if you're able to obtain an adequate dorsal nerve block, will tolerate the procedure quite well. So to do a dorsal nerve block, it's uh, not unlike other digital blocks that we perform. You want to use lidocaine uh, without epi. You can dilute it to minimize toxicity, but usually a few cc's in each location is enough to obtain anesthesia. The procedure, it's often good to look this up uh, online. There's lots of YouTube videos, get a visual, but uh, to talk through it, what you want to do, obviously using sterile technique, is retract the penis caudally. Then you're going to insert a small gauge needle, a 25 or 27, on either side of the midline at the 10 and 2 o'clock positions. And you're going just below the inferior edge of the pubic ramus. You want to advance your needle in a medial and caudal direction. You're just going in a few millimeters, maybe three to five millimeters. And you'll actually feel a pop as you enter into Buck's fascia. It's a pretty notable tactile sensation, and then you know you're in the right space and you instill your anesthetic. You want to ensure that you're not in a vascular structure like with any procedure, so you aspirate as you're inserting your needle. There's lots of good videos online to watch. Yeah, we'll, we'll have one on the show notes. Okay, so maybe a, a combination of some light procedural sedation and a, a dorsal nerve block. Okay, so now let's say Everything's numbed up just the way you need it to be. What's the next step? So the next step is fairly straightforward. 
Uh, you want to insert a large bore needle, so 18-gauge needle or a 19-gauge butterfly, into the lateral corpora at the 10 or 2 o'clock position. Uh, you want to avoid the urethra ventrally, and you want to avoid the neurovascular bundle dorsally. You want to avoid going in too deep as to avoid the cavernosal artery. Once you're in, uh, you can begin by aspirating blood. As we talked about before, that first aspiration can be your blood gas sample. And then you just want to continue to aspirate 10 to 20 mils of blood. Uh, you can start on one side. The procedure can be done on both sides. The corpora cavernosa do communicate with each other. In some patients who respond very quickly to this procedure, aspiration on one side is enough. But often you'll need to insert butterflies on both sides. In terms of how quickly you do expect them to respond, how quickly do they typically get better? I think a lot of it has to do with time from when the event happened to when we're seeing them. Because, you know, if you wait a long time, that blood becomes full of clots and it really is hard to, to aspirate. A good example is uh, in my clinic when I'm teaching people how to inject trimix, for example. So these are really end-stage diabetics or guys that have had prostate surgery. And we give them a priapism accidentally in the office. So those guys, for example, you stick a needle in, you aspirate out 60 cc's of blood, and, and they can basically leave the office within five minutes. As opposed to someone who used the same substance, Trimix, but came in 12 hours later where you're really fighting to get all the blood out of there. Okay, so let's say you've done your aspiration. Let's say you've done it both sides. You've waited half an hour. Nothing's happened. You're going to do a second attempt, right? Yeah, so if detumescence hasn't occurred after two aspiration attempts, you know, you've gotten 10, 20 mils each time, then you can move on to your next step, which you can irrigate uh, the corpora with sterile saline, so about 20 mils of sterile saline. And that's to try and break down some of that clot to be able to aspirate with better success. The next step would be the addition of intracavernosal sympathomimetics, and that really helps increase your success rate up to 60 to 90 percent. So I'm these... so glad you had to say the word sympathomimetics. <laughs> we say it a lot. I, I have trouble with the detumescence, actually. <laughs> that I'm, I'm good with. <laughs> I have trouble with priapism, which is really a problem today. <laughs> The sympathomimetics work by inducing contraction of smooth muscle, thus permitting the venous outflow, which was that initial cause of your ischemic priapism. So phenyl is the drug of choice as it's a pure alpha agonist and you're getting decreased cardiac effects from uh, lack of beta agonism. So you want to dilute your phenyl to a concentration of 100 to 500 micrograms per mil. So this is pretty similar to what we're used to in terms of push-dose phenyl in resuscitation patients. But just as a reminder, what you're going to do is take your one amp of phenyl, which is uh, 10 milligrams of phenyl in one milliliter. You're going to dilute that in 100 mils of saline. So now you have a concentration of 10 milligrams over 100 mils, which gives you 100 micrograms per mil. So once you've mixed up your fennel, what you want to do is inject uh, one to two mils into the corpora. You can use your same butterfly needle that's still in place. Every five minutes, you can repeat that with your maximum dose being a milligram over an hour. And then you want to uh, compress the area where you've injected to prevent hematoma formation after you've completed the procedure with success, of course.
Yeah, that's great. I, I think the the way to conceptualize it is we got a lot of blood in this penis and we need to get this blood out of the penis. So there's two ways of getting it out. It can go outside or it can go back in the body. There's there's no other way around it. We can't make it disappear. So um, one option is doing the aspiration. So that's getting it out of the body. And then the other option is getting it in the body, which is with the fennel to try to open up the vasculature. And either way you're doing it, I think uh, the only additional thing I'll say is uh, squeezing really helps. So if you're trying to get it out of the body, squeezing proximally to try to encourage the blood flow out through the butterfly needles that Dr. Wolpert was talking about is quite effective. And then if you give the fennel, you can squeeze you know, more distally towards the body and try to get that blood to go back in the body. So what I do after that initial fennel injection, if the patient's not sedated, they have nothing else to do with their hands. They're just lying there. You, you ask them to hold on to the penis and squeeze with all their might to try to encourage that blood back into the body. I don't know how evidence-based it is. I don't think they've ever done many trials on priapism, but uh, I think it's a quite effective and it's a good way for the patient to get involved and in trying to get themselves flaccid again. Also, like uh, thinking about their mother-in-law and all that kind of stuff helps. <laughs> all right. Great pearl. Uh, so just to review there, in terms of your basic steps, for the management of ischemic priapism. First, you need to make sure the patient's going to be comfortable. So you want to consider doing some procedural sedation in addition to dorsal nerve block. And that will have some good pictures and videos in the show notes for. Once you've got your dorsal nerve block done, you're going to do step two is your corporal aspiration at 10 and 2 o'clock position. And you aspirate 10 or 20 mils. You can try on one side, and if that doesn't work, you try the other side, You can always, and then you repeat it once. And if that's not working, you can either irrigate with saline or use phenylephrine. And we'll have all the dosages and details of that again in the show notes. Dr. Kukowski, is there really any value in non-invasive treatments like warm compresses or I've read about oral terbutaline? Is there any role for these in the emergency department? I don't think there's much role for oral medication. Certainly, I think squats help. There was recently a case of a patient came in with a priapism and the eMERGE doc had them walk up to the ICU, which is 18 floors up and down. And by the time they reached back to the emergency department, they were flaccid. Which is pretty cool that just doing stairs can, you know, avoid all these pretty invasive procedures. Now, it's an anecdote. I don't know how often that's effective. Uh, but for example, when I when I do send people on Trimix home, I tell them if their erection lasts more than two hours before you come to the eMERGE, do 30 squats and, and see what happens. Yeah, I hear there was a paper in CGEM recently about this. Yeah, it's a great case report. I'm not sure if this is the same case, but who presented with priapism at five-hour mark and was instructed to walk up and down the stairs and after seven minutes of vigorous walking had achieved detumescence. I had to laugh at your statement uh, once they returned to the eMERGE, uh, they were flaccid, which I think is a really good blanket statement for well, whenever the emergency I department. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whenever I see some guy running up the stairs to the ICU now, I assume he has an erection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, d I'm just trying to imagine seeing a patient in the middle of our department doing squats and wondering what's going on there, but <laughs> now I'll know. We've seen stranger things in the middle of our <laughs> <Yeah>. department. <laughs> so 
as an additional note to think about, particularly in patients that have been using drugs of abuse and perhaps uh, engaging in unsafe sexual practices, it's important to still consider STI screening and potential treatment in these patients. I think we get so wrapped up in the patient who presents with priapism and trying to treat it acutely that uh, we still need to consider that this patient may have been exposed to other potential harms and to discuss and treat that appropriately as well. Yeah. One of the interesting things on a physiology aspect is uh, what cocaine does to erections. And I've seen this a number of times and people using cocaine can get a priapism, but it's not what you would expect. So initially when cocaine is taken, you get this rise in sympathetic tone and then eventually your parasympathetic tone counters that. And then you lose your sympathetic tone, but you're still in a really high parasympathetic kind of state. And we all know from point and shoot, the parasympathetics do the erections and the sympathetics do like ejaculation or emission. And so when you're in that high parasympathetic tone, you can get a persistent erection. And uh, in general, they're, they're pretty self-limited. Many of them don't even need intervention. So it's not uncommon to see someone in the eMERGE that was using cocaine and then on coming down from it, all of a sudden developed a priapism. And now for a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Metricade would like to let you know that they are helping EDs during the COVID pandemic to set up additional call schedules and screening clinics. Metricade is giving EDs access to their web-based tool, but more importantly, they're doing all the work of the building and managing of the schedules, helping to build capacity and resilience in our system, doing what they do best. If you're struggling with the logistics of adding coverage to your existing schedule or you're setting up completely new schedules for screening or treatment, let them help you out. They can get a new schedule up and running in a matter of days, leaving you to take care of other matters. Check out metricade.com slash emcases and get in touch with them today. All right, let's move on to our next case. You have a man who's 65 years old with benign prostatic hypertrophy and he comes to the emergency department saying that he hasn't been able to urinate for the last 10 hours. He has lower abdominal discomfort. The nurse attempts a Foley catheter placement, and unfortunately, it's not successful. Of course, we see these pretty much every day in the emergency department. So it's not that uncommon, actually, that the nurse can't get a Foley in. And this is something that ends up being sometimes something that gets very complicated. We have to call the urologist for, but I think there's a lot of things we can do in the emergency department that can help fix this problem pretty quickly. So what do we do next? Dr. Wolpert? So when we see a case of urinary retention in the emergency department, we usually breathe a sigh of relief. This is one of those few cases where the diagnosis is already made and the management is very straightforward. The one thing that it's really important to do is still consider what is the etiology of that retention. So the most common cause will be bladder outlet obstruction due to BPH, but it's really vital that as emergency doctors, we rule out the most dangerous diagnosis, and that's that we rule out an underlying neurological cause for the retention. In fact, I had a uh, friend who at the age of 50 presented to the emergency department with urinary retention, had four subsequent visits related to discomfort 
work with a catheter, a lot of penile pain, and had some unusual distal neurological symptoms that either were not well expressed or not well recognized. He subsequently presented on his fifth visit to the emergency department with bilateral lower extremity weakness and was eventually diagnosed with transverse myelitis. So it's really important to at least acknowledge the neurological cause for urinary retention and to rule that out in your patient. In your 80-year-old patient with known BPH who has a long-standing history of difficulty urinating, you know, it doesn't require as much of a workup, but always worth identifying and documenting the neurological status of that patient. Other causes, typically obstructive causes, so urethral strictures, pelvic masses, uh, fecal impaction is a common one. We'll sometimes see it in pregnant patients with pregnancy-related retention, pelvic organ prolapse in female patients. Patients with infectious conditions can also present with retention, so important to look out for prostatitis, balanitis, cystitis, herpes simplex, varicella. And often a cystitis will tip somebody with BPH over to that point of retention. So it's also important to consider medications, uh, some of the common culprits being the alpha agonists, TCAs, anticholinergics, antihistamines, antipsychotics. Interestingly, and I just uh, learned this recently, that even NSAIDs have been implicated as a causative factor for urinary retention. I have to admit that uh, when we're trying to be efficient in the emergency department, you see someone you know, with urinary retention, you're like, okay, get the Foley in, maybe check a creatinine, get a urine maybe, and, you know, get them moving along that I've probably not thought about that differential properly enough times. And my guess is that I've missed many times where they're on some medication that has actually either triggered this or, or made it a lot worse that I could very easily tell them not to take and would probably fix their problem even maybe without needing a, a catheter. So yeah, absolutely important to run through that differential. My understanding is that not all patients with urinary retention actually require treatment. And this is important because we don't want to expose them to the complications of catheterization, you know, urethral trauma, UTIs, etc. On the other hand, some patients do require catheterization to prevent hydronephrosis, renal failure, and all those horrible things. So Dr. Krakowski, what exactly are the indications for catheterization in urinary retention? So I'm not talking about like the very obvious guy who's like screaming in pain who hasn't peed for 20 hours, but there's sometimes we get cases where maybe they're dribbling uh, and they have some pain. Do all those patients need a catheter? Like which patients actually require getting a catheter in the emergency department? I think it's a great question. I mean, we, we can uh, kind of throw away the obvious one. So someone with a kidney injury that we think is likely secondary to obstruction. So whether you have an ultrasound or a point of care ultrasound showing hydronephrosis and an AKI with an elevated uh, creatinine. So that's sort of a, a fairly obvious one. Or someone in excruciating pain and you examine them and their bladder's palpable and they haven't peed in 12 hours. Like you said, those are sort of the, the two more obvious ones. Or a significant amount in the bladder uh, with evidence of a urinary tract infection, that urine should probably come out of the body a little bit quicker than it's coming out right now. The question is, what is that number? Like how, how much urine in the bladder is retention? And we don't really know. I bet if uh, you and me and Dr. Wolport, we scanned all our bladders, um, I see a lot of water and coffee in the room. We probably all have between 200 and 400 cc's in our bladder. 
You two are merge docs. You're probably used to holding your bladders. You probably have like over a liter capacity. They're nodding in agreement right now. So a lot of people have big bladders and those people do not need to be catheterized. So if someone has, let's say, 250 in their bladder, I wouldn't classify that as retention without one of those other reasons to put a catheter in. And while it only takes a second, you know, catheterization is not benign. And when the patients go home with a bag and a tube, if it's unnecessary, it's a lot of grief. So I don't think there's a real uh, black or white answer. We get concerned about the patient that are still peeing, so they're still letting out maybe 100, 200 cc's, but their post-void residual, their ultrasound after they pee shows, let's say, 800 cc's. So really, they're just kind of peeing a little bit off the top, almost like getting a little trimming of the hair. And, and clinically, what you see is they say, all of a sudden, I have a little bit of incontinence. So you see a 65-year-old guy with known BPH who's peeing, but all of a sudden, he's leaking a little bit. And uh, usually, that suggests that there's a little bit of overflow incontinence going on. And that's, uh, to me, sort of a red flag that you should consider catheterization. And the ultimate goal is just to protect the kidneys. That's, that's really all we're doing. Okay. So the bottom line there is that there's really no magic number. You know, sometimes no. people say 300 is kind of your cutoff, but really it all depends on the individual patient and what the cause of their urinary retention is and their, their symptomology. So we started off this case by saying, what's next? So the nurse can't get the catheter in. You've got a patient who's, let's say, screaming in pain, and let's say their bladder has you know 800 cc's in it. Can you go through for us your approach to the difficult Foley catheter? Yeah, sure. We're talking about a man right now, but we can talk about both sides of the anatomy. I, I think history is actually quite contributory. So uh, if they've ever had any prostate surgery before, be that a radical prostatectomy or a TERP, you probably know where the obstruction is versus someone who's known to have urethral strictures, which are going to be really difficult to navigate, versus someone on physical exam who has a really tight meatus. So you're pretty sure that's where the obstruction is. So I think a history and physical is pretty helpful. Making sure uh, before you start anything that you look at the meatus because you don't want to show up there with a 16 French Foley and you get the patient all prepped and you see they have a 12 French meatus. They do have a 12 French meatus. You can certainly gently dilate. If you have dilators or just a snap, you can really do a, a gentle dilation to try to just open up the meatus enough to get a catheter in. Lots of lubrication. So we use what are called Eurojets or syringes with a lidocaine-infused lubricant. Sounds like a drink. Use two of them to really lubricate the urethra as much as possible. By the point that uh, a nurse wasn't able to get the catheter in, I usually ask for a coude tip catheter. C-O-U-D-E. I never knew how to spell it until quite recently. And basically what it is, it's kind of like a hockey stick shape. The idea with that is that the prostate kind of fixes the urethra there, and this allows you to get through that bend quite easily. So uh, my go-to is a 16 coude tip catheter with two big amounts of lubricant in and trying to relax the patient. And I think the pelvic floor can actually cause some problems. So having the patient exhale and Pretend they're anywhere else other than having a tube put into the urethra is helpful. And uh, the last thing in terms of sort of pearls here is if it, you think the patient has BPH and it's not a stricture and you're having trouble at the 16, the human intuition is to go down to a 14 or a 12 when oftentimes going up to an 18 will be more successful because it's just flopping around in this huge prostate. Like if you look in a cysto with a guy with a big prostate, it's like the caves, like cave divers do. It's like insanely amounts of little crevices and places for the catheter to curl. And the thicker and stronger a catheter won't curl there. It'll go straight into the bladder. So go up, don't go down would be my suggestion. Oh, there's a pearl. Never considered that before. Dr. Walford, any, any other pearls when it comes to um, the difficult Foley catheter? 
couple of uh, tips when I use, I also use two Eurojets uh, every time I'm putting a catheter in. When I used to use them, uh, most of the lidocaine and uh, gel would squirt around the penis and then just make it everything slippery and more difficult. So a couple of tips. One is holding the penis at a perpendicular angle to the patient, pulling it away from the patient, and then instilling the lidocaine jelly slowly. One, instilling it slowly causes a lot less discomfort for the patient. That sort of urethral stretch by a sudden squirt of gel is quite uncomfortable for them. So instilling it slowly and then actually pinching the top, pinching at the meatus to try and keep some of that gel in there rather than having it all around the patient. So it's actually providing you good analgesia and lubrication. And then exactly what Yona was saying, you know, I liken it to attempting an airway. So you have to understand what is your difficulty in the difficult airway. And if something hasn't succeeded one time, we don't repeat that same effort. You need to try something different. So if it feels tight at the entrance and you're considering a urethral stricture, then using the smaller catheter. If it feels like it's due to BPH, then using that large catheter. So speak with your nurse and try and see why that initial attempt failed and then use a different technique. The more frequently we try this, the more likely we are to cause trauma in that patient, create false passages, cause bleeding, and then create a scenario that now we've made it difficult even for our skilled urologists to be able to catheterize them. The uh, tension on the penis is such a great point that I forgot. And it, it's not easy to hold a penis on stretch. One of the things we tell our medical students is you uh, hold it between your thumb and your index finger, almost like holding a wine glass. And then when we're teaching our urology residents how to hold a wine glass, we say hold it like a penis. <laughs> when, when I was taught the positioning, I was told, hold it like you own it, which I also found confusing. I like the wine glass analogy. <laughs> All right. Let's say in this patient with BPH, uh, you've tried multiple different techniques. You've tried a, a smaller catheter. You've tried a larger catheter. You've done all the right things, and you still can't get the catheter in. There's always the possibility of doing a suprapubic catheter. And I think for some reason, maybe because we think it's more invasive, that we're often kind of scared away from doing this. Dr. Wolpert, can you tell us a little bit about how to put in a suprapubic tube when it's indicated and some of the maybe misconceptions around it? So I think you're correct in this fear that we have about suprapubic catheters being exceptionally invasive procedures and challenging procedures. Once again, like with most urological procedures in the emergency department, they're actually fairly straightforward and uh, well within the realm of our skill set. The indications for doing them somewhat depend on your access to specialty care. Uh, so if you have a urologist that's available to see your patient in a short amount of time, you know, perhaps with their advanced skills or their cystoscope and you think the patient can be catheterized via their urethra, I wouldn't necessarily jump in, but if you don't have access to that advanced specialization in a patient who's particularly uncomfortable, is perhaps infected and or septic, has renal injury, or is just in severe distress related to their obstruction, I think it's a very reasonable intervention. We actually imagine this is really uncomfortable for the patient, but interestingly, a Cochrane review actually suggested that patients have less 
discomfort with a suprapubic catheter and actually have less bacteria in their urine. So it may be a uh, cleaner, more comfortable option for the patient. Wow, that's surprising and, and really important point. So a suprapubic catheter might actually be less traumatizing, so to speak, for a patient than a regular Foley catheter. Yes. So I'm certainly not suggesting that's my first-line treatment. I'm always going to try the urethral catheter initially, but reading more about this really lessened my discomfort with consideration of this as a treatment. So just to run through the steps, ideally you're going to perform this using the Seldinger technique using a suprapubic catheter set. So doing this, uh, we can use our ultrasound skills to locate the bladder. Typically, we're doing this in patients who have a large bladder, so it's not very difficult to locate the giant water balloon that's taking up their entire abdomen. Your landmark is going to be midline, about two finger breaths above the symphysis pubis. You're going to insert your needle and aspirate to ensure you're in the bladder. Now, usually you're dealing with a very full bladder, but you want to be careful not to aspirate too much urine before you insert your catheter so that your bladder is still distended. You'll advance your guide wire through uh, your needle and then followed by a dilator that will accommodate your pull-away sheath. So usually it's sort of a catheter within a sheath. You insert that and peel away your sheath like you would a banana peel and then blow up your balloon and secure your catheter. Another option if you don't have those kits in a patient who's really, really uncomfortable is you consider can consider just aspirating some urine from the patient to help relieve their discomfort, their acute retention while they're waiting for more definitive management. I think that's like the best point in the world. We have a, like if you have a second year resident, for example, that gets called into the ER and they're, they can't get a catheter in and let's say they, whatever ER they're at isn't comfortable doing the suprapubic and they don't want to wake you up at four in the morning to go in and help them with the suprapubic. And I found myself in that situation as an R2 and I didn't know what to do. It's so intuitive. Why don't you just stick a needle in, a spinal needle, and take the patient out of all their pain and then you buy yourself three hours to get the help you need to get a catheter in or get a suprapubic in. And I think it's underutilized and it's so intuitive. Like this guy is shrieking in pain, his bladder's full, you can feel his bladder, just stick a needle in and take out some of the urine. It's really satisfying. Yeah, I mean, we do thoracentesis, we do paracentesis. It's, you know, really the same type of procedure, but again, probably a bit more straightforward. Now, many of these patients who present in urinary retention, we're going to send off for a creatinine, make sure they're not in renal failure. We'll send off for a urinalysis to make sure they're not infected. But what about imaging? Which patients with acute urinary retention require imaging in the emergency department and which patients can wait for imaging later and follow up? So I would say typically I'm not imaging the classic urinary retention patient. The patients I'm going to choose to image are the ones who perhaps I suspect something intra-abdominal or within the pelvis as an obstructive cause. I'll also uh, consider imaging a patient who has an acute kidney injury who doesn't respond to catheterization, primarily looking for other causes. So I'm not imaging to investigate the classic urinary retention. I'm imaging to investigate other etiologies or other concerns I may have in that patient. All right, let's talk a little bit about post-obstructive diuresis. First of all, what is post-obstructive diuresis and when do we really need to worry about it? I mean, do we really ever need to worry about it, I guess, is the real question. So 
post-obstructive diuresis to urologist is basically the, the time for me to now go to the washroom so I don't have to talk about it. It's kind of complicated, uh, maybe just to me. But basically what it is, and any nephrologist listening to this is going to be cringing, so I apologize, is the obstruction has been relieved. And now all of a sudden, for a number of fairly esoteric uh, mechanisms, the kidneys are diuresing and you're getting a, a ton of uh, water leaving the body. And in those patients, they can run into a lot of electrolyte abnormalities unless they're uh, managed pretty aggressively. And the average patient that goes into post-destructive diuresis can't really go home. The definition is different. Sometimes it's 200 cc's of urine an hour for two hours, and people have different definitions. But you just have to make up all this water that's leaving them. And so for a patient that's conscious and talking, you can keep them in hospital and put a jug of water by the bed. And they drink water just to make up the difference. But in people that are having electrolyte abnormalities, the medicine folks have, uh, and, and urologists, we, we do this too a little bit, where you replace with a certain concentration, like half normal saline, to try to make up the difference and try to keep the electrolytes uh, normal so that you don't have any cognitive changes from abnormalities in sodium and things like that. But I, I think for that reason, it does make sense if you catheterize someone and they had a ton in their bladder. It's very rare to have this problem without an AKI, but if they've had an AKI and you catheterize them to keep them in the department, maybe for two hours, see how much is coming out once the initial amount of urine in the bladder comes out, kind of make sure it's not a crazy amount for two hours. And then, you know, I would encourage anyone to call medicine then, not us, because uh, they're, they're much better at managing post-obstructive diuresis than we are. All right. Is it fair to say that you don't need to worry about post-obstructive diuresis except in those patients who are in real failure. Yeah, that, that's so, correct for, in my books. Okay. Yeah, we see a lot of patients with urinary retention, and I've seen very few cases of this. So it's going to be in your high-risk patients, so patients who are uremic with a significant uh, renal dysfunction, who are volume overloaded, patients who are confused or altered. I think one patient I saw this in their initial lab work, they had a sodium of 121 before we catheterized them. So this isn't your average urinary retention patient. So suffice to say that in your awake, alert, non-AKI patient, you really don't need to worry about post-obstructive diuresis that you can send those patients. So you don't have to wait for the two, three hours. You can send them home right away. It's those high-risk patients, the altered patients, the patients with already abnormal electrolytes or who you know who their creatinine comes back sky high. Those are the patients that you want to keep around for a few hours and, and see if they hit that threshold of more than 200 cc's per hour for two hours. Then you want to consider this diagnosis, repeat your electrolytes and your creatinine, and speak to medicine. Now, this question always comes up, and I can't actually find a solid evidence-based answer for it. How long should patients have the catheter in for after they leave the emergency department? So this is, of course... You know, the first thing that every single patient asks is, how long do I have to have this thing in for? Yeah. And I've heard so many different answers to this, and I couldn't find anything in the literature that tells me what to do. So practically speaking, Dr. Kakowski, how long should patients have their catheter in for? I think seven to 10 days is a fairly reasonable time, maybe even shorter. Uh, the basic premise, how I explain it to patients, is to pee, you need two things. You need the motor, which is your bladder muscle, which squeezes, and you need an open tube, which is the urethra and the prostate and someone with a prostate. So the average person with retention, that motor, that muscle has been overstretched. 
And one of the treatments is getting the urine out so there's no AKI or infection. And the other is letting the stretched out muscle regain its function. And I think in someone that's been in retention for some time, we don't know the answer, but it's somewhere between maybe five to 10 days. Practically speaking, a lot of these folks get sent to urology clinics and in a well-organized hospital, they'll be seen within a week, but that's not always the case. You know, the danger with leaving it up to a month is you don't really want to leave a catheter in place for 30 days. I think, you know, leaving a catheter for two weeks, there's no real evidence that rates of UTIs or any sort of skin breakdown would happen. So I don't think it's the end of the world if it's two weeks, but obviously keeping in mind that this was our loved one, we would want them at home for two weeks with the catheter. The only uh, other thing that, uh, you know, improves the chance of this person being able to urinate next is adding a medication to relax the prostate if we're talking about BPH. So in someone that isn't on an alpha blocker like tamsulosin or aflucin or something to start at the emergency department, they work really quickly. They work within around 48 hours. So starting that and then arranging to have the catheter taken out in a week or so while on that medication to really give them the best chance possible to be catheter free after this incident. Yeah, that's something I admit I've forgotten many times is, you know, simple, straightforward BPH case. You put the catheter in and then you check their creatinine and they're fine. You send them home and I forget to give them a medication to yeah, actually I, help them along. I mean, I think that's really common when I see them in the outpatient clinic. If they're not on an alpha blocker, I give them the option. I say, we can take the catheter out today and see what happens. Or you can come back in three days. We'll put you on a medication that will slightly increase your odds of being successful. So it's up to you what you want to do. So I routinely prescribe an alpha blocker and there's pretty good evidence to support using it uh, We won't get into the debate about alpha blockers and kidney stones, but there is a Cochrane review looking at alpha blocker medications in patients with urinary retention, and there's definite benefit over, I think it's about eight randomized control studies showing an increased likelihood of success with trial avoid when these patients are prescribed these medicines from the emergency department. So I think anything we can do to improve the patient's uh, chance of success in terms of keeping that catheter out is helpful, particularly prescribing a medicine that's fairly cheap, safe, and well-tolerated. They're very safe medications, but the most significant side effect is postural hypotension. So I always counsel my patients, particularly that initial getting up out of bed in the morning. So a patient who has Parkinson's disease or orthostatic hypotension or is at high risk for syncope, that might be the patient I may not prescribe it in. Okay. And Dr. Kukowski, assuming that you have no particular conflict of interest here, um, that you aren't paid by any of the pharmaceutical companies that, that produce alpha blockers. Is there any advantage to one alpha blocker over another? I mean, I know in our department we use the brand name Flomax quite often, but I think that's only because it's got a very catchy name. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so no, no conflict of interest here. The alpha blockers are different in terms of sort of when they were developed and how selective they were. So the reason Tamsulosin, which is Flomax, has such popularity, I think at the time it came out, it was a, it was a pretty selective one, which is nice because you get less side effects. So tamsulosin is a good one. I mean, um, the side effects once the catheter's out is retrograde ejaculation in a lot of people, which is uh, bothersome to some, but uh, lower rates of hypotension and things than the older ones like terazosin or hytrin or, or other ones like that. 
and Flomax really only comes in one dose. For for younger guys, uh, the brand name is Alfluzacin or Zaytrol is a nice option because they get less sexual dysfunction from it. So Zaytrol is nice for a younger patient uh, who really doesn't want the retrograde ejaculation. And I think Tamsulosin is, I think what you're doing is totally reasonable and probably what, what almost every department's doing right now, which is the 0.4 milligrams of Tamsulosin daily. That's a great pearl about the younger patient. I had no idea. I'm learning so much here. Dr. Kikowski, you had mentioned that you don't want to be leaving the catheter in for more than a couple of weeks. In terms of, you know, you always hear people talking about, oh, there's a high rate of of UTIs with uh, leaving catheters in. Is there any role for antibiotic prophylaxis in patients with indwelling bladder catheters? I mean, you know, anyone with a catheter in is going to be contaminated and right. people think they have UTIs when right. in fact they don't. Yeah, I, I mean, that's the point. Everyone with a catheter in will have leukocytes on their urinalysis and will have discomfort and dysuria because they have a catheter in. So so clinically in using a urinalysis, every single person should be antibiotics. Uh, I don't think there's any any guideline in the world that suggests that people should be on a prophylactic antibiotics with a catheter in. Uh, patients find that uh, mind-blowing because they have a tube that looks crusty and why wouldn't they be on an antibiotic? Um, the, the real treatment, if, if you do think that there is uh, bacteria is just changing that catheter, really. And then you can debate if you have a positive culture, whether it's contamination or whether it should be treated or not. But uh, by and large, the role of antibiotics in people with catheters is really limited. Yeah, because I still do see people being put on on prophylactic antibiotics occasionally just when they have a catheter in. Um, So that's something I think, generally speaking, unless you have a very specific reason, we should really avoid doing. I agree. Before we leave urinary retention, any any last uh, clinical pearls you have? Yeah, so I think in a lot of patients we see with urinary retention, it's also uh, important to look at their bowel function. So obstipation, constipation is often a contributing factor, if not a cause. So it's worth just asking the patient about that in order to maximize their chance at a successful trial avoid. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've had many patients over the last 20 years where they come in with urinary retention and they're very constipated. You give them a fleet enema and you've avoided having to insert a Foley catheter in the first place. Yeah, they're, that's a great point. They're like cured by a, yeah. a fleet enema, not by a catheter. Yeah, my only pearl is the, the case of urinary retention you don't want to miss, which is a middle-aged man who either has never had a family doc, so never had prostate cancer discussion, screening, or anything, uh, or has a diagnosis of prostate cancer that was lost to follow-up and presents in urinary retention. Because what you don't want to miss on these guys is Cotaquina syndrome. So to rule that out, I mean, that's uh, usually urinary retention with fecal incontinence and saddle anesthesia. So in a guy in that context, you want to you know check if they have saddle anesthesia and, and ask an unknown history about their bowels. And if you really suspect that that's sort of an emergency, usually treated with steroids to, to reduce the metastatic burden. But the idea being that this might be spinal cord mets from metastatic prostate cancer. And uh, it's not terribly uncommon. So, you know, in my training alone, I saw two or three cases presented urinary retention to the eMERGE, just run-of-the-mill, middle-aged guy. But something was a little bit off on the exam or history and ended up having metastatic prostate cancer. It's the only real context to order a PSA in the emergency department because, you know, with a catheter retention, PSAs are going to be elevated. They'll be elevated in the teens or 20s. They won't be elevated to 900. That's suggestive of metastatic prostate cancer. And those folks can't leave the hospital. 
you know, as we mentioned before, that we always want to think about a neurological cause for retention. I certainly wasn't aware of the prostate cancer as the you know, primary etiology. I think in those patients, if we're suspecting a neurological cause, we're often undertaking some imaging in the emergency department. Uh, so interesting to maybe add a PSA uh, if your spinal imaging comes back as uh, negative. Yeah, it's funny. I've always used the example of PSA as one of those tests that you would never order in the emergency yeah. department, but here we are that there actually I guess might be a role for it. This is the one time you would ever order it. Stat PSA. <laughs> Another interesting presentation with urinary retention is the patient who comes in describing symptoms really consistent with urinary retention, urge to void, going to the bathroom, very little coming out, dribbling, feeling of incomplete emptying. And that's a patient who has a bladder scan or post-void residual done that's actually minimal. Diagnosis to consider in that patient, one is UTI, so just bladder irritation, but the other thing is a distal stone. So they may not present with the classic renal colic pain symptoms, but that distal stone irritates the bladder. The way I often explain it to patients is bladders, you know, are not very uh, complex organs. They know full and empty. And if anything is irritating the bladder, the message the brain gets is my bladder is full. I need to go to the bathroom. So there's the sense that the patient has that they're in retention and they're unable to void, but really they just have something, a stone or a UTI that's irritating their bladder, giving them that sensation. All right, time for the big review. Priapism. How much time do we have to fix it before there's irreversible tissue damage? Well, time is tissue. At 24 hours, 90% of patients with priapism will have irreversible damage, and by 48 hours, all 100% of patients will be impotent. So the sooner we treat this in the ED, the better, ideally within four to six hours. And you don't need to wait for the urologist. It's easy to do yourself in the ED. There's two kinds of priapism. There's low-flow ischemic priapism and high-flow priapism. Low-flow is the one that's by far the most common, and the most common cause of low-flow ischemic priapism is idiopathic. But the other common causes that you need to be on the lookout for are intracavernosal injections for erection prolongation, like the triple-mix cocktail, and that is fentolamine, perpaverin, and prostaglandin. The other common one is sickle cell disease. And then don't forget medications. You don't want to assume that the patient has idiopathic priapism when, in fact, it's due to one of their medications that they keep on taking because you don't identify it. They'll come back with priapism again. High-flow priapism is rare and is usually caused by trauma, like a saddle injury, or as a complication of the treatment of priapism itself. It's usually not painful, and that's how you really distinguish it from the low-flow ischemic priapism, and it's not as acute an emergency as low-flow priapism is. Don't forget to get a corporal blood gas at baseline and repeat it after treatment to confirm normalization of the pH and PCO2, a sure sign that your treatment has worked. Now, how do you actually do this? What are the steps? Number one is the dorsal nerve block with plain lidocaine. Now, you can do this with analgesia or with procedural sedation. And to do this, you use a 25 or 27 gauge needle and aim just below the inferior edge of the inferior ramus at the 10 o'clock or 2 o'clock position and direct the needle slightly medially and caudally. Aspirate to ensure that you're not in a vessel and you'll feel a pop when the needle passes through Buck's fascia. That's when you know you're in the right place. Step two is the corporal aspiration. 
So for this, you insert a 19-gauge butterfly needle or an 18-gauge regular needle into the lateral corpora, again, at the 10 or 2 o'clock position. You aspirate 10 to 20 mils of blood. And if that doesn't cure them, then aspirate another 10 to 12 mils on the other side of the penis. And if detumescence doesn't occur after two aspiration attempts of 20 mils each, then the next option is to either irrigate the corpus cavernosum with 20 mils of cold sterile saline or to use phenylephrine. So the important concept there is that corporal aspiration, the idea is to get the blood out of the penis, out of the patient's body. Whereas with phenylephrine, you're trying to get the blood from the penis back into the patient's body. So if you're going to use phenylephrine, dilute it to 100 to 500 micrograms per mil, and you're injecting one to two mils every five minutes to a max dose of one milligram over one hour. And the clinical pearl there is that when you're doing the corporal aspiration, getting the blood out of the penis, out of the patient's body, ask the patient to squeeze the penis proximally to help move that blood out of the penis. And when using phenylephrine, ask the patient to squeeze distally to help get the blood out of the penis, but back into the body, back into the circulation. Now, if none of that works, that's when it's time to call urology for a consideration of surgery. All right, so that's all about priapism. Next is urinary retention. It's important to use a cognitive forcing strategy to think neurologic cause before assuming a more common benign cause like BPH. You really don't want to miss a cotoquina syndrome or a cord compression secondary to metastatic prostate cancer, for example. Now, the most common causes of urinary retention in men are, of course, BPH, there's prostate cancer, urethral stricture from STIs or trauma, plus you want to consider bladder stones and acute prostatitis as the less common causes because treatment will be very different. Now, in women, urinary retention can be caused by bladder outlet obstruction from impacted stool, from vaginal or uterine prolapse, urethral stricture, a pelvic mass and from valvovaginitis. Lastly, medications can cause urinary retention, ones like alpha agonists, even oral decongestants and NSAIDs. Now, let's review Dr. Kukowski's approach to the difficult urethral catheter. First, use lots of lube, two Eurojets instilled slowly using a 16 coude catheter. One counterintuitive move in a patient with BPH is rather than trying a smaller catheter after one size fails, try a bigger catheter like a 16 or an 18 French coup de tip. If you think the cause is urethral stricture, then use a smaller catheter like a 12 or 14 French. Now, one important pearl is that if the patient has a history of radical prostatectomy and the catheter just isn't passing, think about a bladder neck issue and you'll have to call urology. Now, if all this troubleshooting doesn't help, it's time to move on to do a suprapubic bladder catheter, which is really easy and has been shown to be less painful and more effective than urethral catheterization. Now, what about post-obstructive diuresis? Now, it can be defined as a urine output of 200 mils for at least two hours after placement of a urethral catheter for urinary retention, but we only really need to consider this diagnosis in the high-risk patient. So patients with obvious volume overload or who are obviously uremic or altered. For those patients, 
measure the urine output for a couple of hours after catheterization, and if there's a waterfall of output, call medicine and get them admitted. And remember that there's no evidence that gradual bladder decompression will decrease the chance of post-obstructive diuresis. Now, the other question is, how long should the catheter stay in for? And the answer is about a week. Resist the urge to satisfy the patient when they ask to have the catheter removed on day two or three. There's fairly good evidence that they are quite likely to go back into retention and require recatheterization, which is associated with all kinds of complications. And don't forget to put them on an alpha blocker so that they're more likely to pass a trial of void. Well, that about wraps it up for this part one of our series on urologic emergencies. In part two, we talk about a diagnosis that is easy to miss, can be devastating for patients if missed, and is mired with pitfalls in diagnosis, and that is testicular torsion. We'll also cover some bonus material after that. So until next time, stay safe, be kind, and take it easy.